For several years, I've been following the, the journey of a family. Um, the dad's a pastor, and the, he, he had a little girl who, at five years of age, was diagnosed with, with brain cancer. And uh, he, they, they went through surgery and treatment, and for a period of time, she was seemingly without cancer. Uh, it recurred a second time. And uh, they went through more treatments, and again, for a period of time, uh, she was without cancer. Uh, it reoccurred uh, a third time. This has been nearly three years ago, and uh, there was no protocol in place for how to deal with this cancer recurring a third time. It, it just there, it hadn't happened enough for there to be any plan in place. And so now the family walks this fine line of, we want to continue treating her for cancer to try to keep cancer at bay, prevent its return, but then also the fact that the chemotherapy is damaging her young body, and she's had to endure it for years. When you hear a story like that, don't questions flood into your mind. But not only that, when you have an experience like that. Now, not many of us here have had to to walk the path of having a little girl with cancer. Some of you have. But most of us here have had to walk some painful roads. And some of you today are in the midst of some incredibly difficult days, some days of of great hardship. So when we hear a story like that, yes, questions flood into our mind, but when we have our own experiences of pain and difficulty, then those questions don't just flood into our mind. Yes, they pierce our hearts. And we wonder with everything that we are, God, where are you? Where? Where are you? What are you doing? So how do we trust God when all that we feel It's the hard hand of God. How how do we trust Him in those times? This morning we'll be in the book of Ruth for some answers. As we begin a a new series through uh, the book of Ruth, this is a beautiful story of heartache and pain, of providence and redemption. This took place uh, in in Israel's history during the time of the judges. So, So think back here in Egypt, God's people have been enslaved God raises up Moses to deliver them through a series of miracles. They've been delivered. They're wandering in the promised land because of disobedience. God raises up Joshua to lead them to conquer the promised land. Joshua dies, and we enter the period of Judges. From the time of of Joshua's death until Saul being declared king, this is the period of Judges. And if you read the book of Judges, you'll see that it is indeed a dark and dismal day in the life of Israel. In fact, the final verse of Judges says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now what Ruth reminds us, because remember Ruth is occurring in the midst of this time period, is that even in the worst of times, God is at work. Often behind the scenes, often we don't understand, we we don't see But the story of Ruth reminds us, the story of Naomi reminds us that God is indeed at work in the lives of his people. Now, in this chapter, in chapter 1, we're going to see a lot of hardship, a lot of misery, a lot of pain. 
but we're also going to see glimmers of hope. We're going to see that God is at work in the lives of his people. Let's look at Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So here we get the setting of this story. Uh, it occurred again in the times of the judges. It obviously was written down some, some years after it, it occurred. We, we see that in verse 1. What happens is in Bethlehem, there's a famine, and uh, there, there's a lack of food. Now, we know in, in God's providence He used famines at other times in the the lives of his people to bring about his purposes. Think about Joseph and how Joseph's family, Jacob and and his sons, ended up in Egypt. And God prospered them and blessed them there. But it was a famine that brought them there. It was hard times and difficult days that brought a a reuniting uh, of Joseph and his family. And so here we see a famine. And this famine drives Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two boys out of Bethlehem. Incidentally, uh, Bethlehem means house of bread. So here there's a famine in the house of bread. They're, they're picking up their belongings. They're leaving what's familiar, and they're going to a foreign territory, an area east of the Dead Sea, a mountainous region with a, uh, a fertile plateau where agriculture uh, occurred. They went there and, and hoped for for food and and for a new life, a a new start. Um, Now, Elimelech, his name means, my God is king. In in Old Testament times, names often said something about a person's character, said something about God's plan in their lives, those kinds of things. Naomi's name meant pleasant or, or lovely. And so they leave Bethlehem, and they settle in Moab. Obviously, they're they're planning to be there for a while. They remain there. We see that in verse 2. They're settling down in this foreign place. Notice that they're from the tribe of Judah. This is important. And as we continue through the book, we'll understand the importance of it more later. But they're from the tribe of Judah. They're in this land, away from Family and friends and support. And Elimelech, he's dead. We get nothing more than that. The author doesn't give us any facts to tell us about how he died, what the situation was. We don't know any of that. All we get is the cold, hard facts. They're in a foreign land. Elimelech has died. And now we have Naomi, a widow with two sons, two young sons in a foreign land. These are tough times, but we're encouraged at least that Naomi has her boys, right? She's lost her husband. 
But there's solace in the fact that there's two young men who are going to grow up and take care of their mama. And who are going to grow up and probably have grandchildren. And the family name will continue on and there's solace there. There's hope there. But that's not the way it goes, is it? Oh, what happens? Well, in verse 4, we see a a time of joy. These boys grow up, and they take wives there from from Moab. Now, the author doesn't really tell us anything about these wives. The author doesn't indicate to us whether the boys should have married Moabite women. We know that that Jews should only marry Jews. It could be that that these women had become Jews. We we don't know all of these circumstances. We we aren't given all of that information, but at any rate, they've married and there's hope, right? There's, there's a wedding. Naomi can feel the, the, the possibilities. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get grandbabies. It's going to be so great. And so there's, there's hope here. There's, there's joy. There's weddings. There's not one wedding. There's two weddings. Both boys, they've married. And time goes on. The boys are married somewhere around 10 years. And then we get... This statement from the author. Malon, Killian, both dead. Again, no details, just the cold, hard facts. They're gone. Put yourself in Naomi's shoes for a moment. You're in a foreign land, away from your family, away from the support that you might have enjoyed. You're there because of a famine. You've lost your husband you've lost one of your sons, you've lost both of your sons. And not only that, after several years of marriage, there was no grandbaby. So there was childlessness in this picture as well. Oh, imagine the loss. Imagine the pain that is in her heart. In fact, In verse 5, the author doesn't even call her Naomi. He simply says, the woman. And this is probably to indicate the fact that from Naomi's perspective, she's lost her very identity. She has lost her husband. She's lost her boys. She has no grandchildren. The family name has no hope of survival. And in verse 5, the author says she is without. And so we see this bitter introduction to Naomi's life. Let's pick up in verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go. Your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? 
Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So here they are on their journey from Moab to Judah. And Ruth begins, pardon me, Naomi begins to to plead with with her daughters-in-law. She she says to them, you need to return. You You need to go back. Now, incidentally, they're on their way to Bethlehem because now there's food there. This is the first real glimmer of hope. There's food in Bethlehem now. The house of bread indeed has bread. So they're on their way. And she says, go back to to your mother's house. You you two go back. You've brought me this far. Now you you need to head back. I'll I'll be fine. Go, Go back to your mother's house. And then she says in verse 8, May the Lord deal kindly with you. Now this is evidence. We, we get hints here and there all throughout this chapter that Naomi has not lost her faith. She has endured great turmoil, but she has held on to her faith. She doesn't understand God. That's clear. And it will become clear as we continue this chapter. But she says to, the, to these two, I want the Lord to, to bless you and to, to show you kindness the way that, that, that you treated us, the way that you treated my boys, the way you've treated me. I, I pray the Lord blesses you like that. I, I hope that you find rest, that, that you find a, a husband and get married and, and, and things just go great for you and you find that security. And she kissed them. And, and when she kissed them, uh, that was a way to sort of say, we're going to part. We'll probably never see each other again. And when she kissed them, that just opened the flood of emotions. And they began to weep and to cry out. They'd been through so much together. And the emotion here was just overwhelming. And she was saying to them, goodbye, go. Go for your own sake, for your own good. But what did they say? They said, no, no, we're going to go with you to your people. We are going to go back to Bethlehem with you And in verse 11, Naomi says, my daughters, you can't do that. Now notice the term of affection that you see here. These weren't in-laws in the sense that we think of in-laws. No, they had become daughters to her. She loved them. She loved them and treasured them. And she says, my daughters, you, you could hear her heart. Do you think she wanted to make this journey by herself? No, but she loved those girls. She wanted what was best for them. And she says, why? Why would you go back with me? 
She says, I don't have any sons in my womb. That's not even a possibility. Probably she's well beyond the age of bearing children. She said, even if I got married tonight and somehow had a child, could you wait till the, till the, till the baby was born? She says, why? In other words, why would you two ladies come back with an older woman who's a widow, who has no hope? She uses the word hope. Even if I had hope, it still wouldn't make sense for you to come back with me. That would be crazy. You go and, and find your own life. Go, go, go back. Go back. And she says in verse 13, my situation is exceedingly bitter. And we're getting a glimpse into Naomi's heart. Oh, she's wrestled with God. She struggled with what he's allowed into her life and, and even what he's brought into her life, she says, it's the hand of the Lord that's brought about this difficult situation. Again, I want you to understand that Naomi, even in this statement, is showing her faith in God. She's not saying, God can't exist. This situation is so horrible. There can be no God. No. She has faith. She doesn't understand Him, but she knows. She knows Him. And so she says, I don't understand what the hand of the Lord has brought into my life. It's bitter. It's difficult. You go. You, you go and find hope. And at that point in verse 14, Orpah kissed her. And this was a way of saying goodbye to Naomi. And so Orpah says, I'm, I'm going back. She's listened to reason. It makes all the sense in the world for her to head back to Moab. And she does. But Ruth, on the other hand, she grabbed a hold of Naomi and she clung to her. She wouldn't let go. Now I want you to see all that Ruth is giving up at this moment. She's giving up the familiar, the place where she has support, the place where, where she has family. And she's going with a woman who has Bad luck. Now we know that it's really not bad luck in the way that we think about it, but it looks at this point as if that's all she has. She's going with this woman who's, who's experienced famine, who's lost her husband, who's lost both of her boys, who has no grandchildren, nothing to show. Ruth has journeying into the unknown in her dedication and in her commitment to Naomi. In verse 15, Naomi says again, you go back. Look, your, your sister-in-law, Orpah, she's going back to Moab. Go, go, go. You, you join her. Go, go to her. You do what she's doing, returning to, to her people and to her gods. This was a way of saying she's going home where she needs to be. You go there too. And Naomi says, not a chance. Pardon me, Ruth says to Naomi, not a chance. Where you go, I will go. And your people, 
they're going to be my people. And your God is going to be my God. And at this point, we don't know if Ruth was a believer, was a follower of the one true God, of Israel's God, or not. But at this point, it appears that she is because she swears by the name of the Lord. She makes an oath in verse 17. She says, may the Lord do so to me and more if, if I don't stay with you until I die. Now, interesting, the, the word that's often used in oaths was a, a generic name for God, Elim, uh, uh, Elohim. And Elohim was often used uh, in, in the taking of oaths. But here, Ruth doesn't use the word Elohim. Ruth uses the word Yahweh, which was a reference to, to God's covenant commitment to his people. So in a sense, it seems as if if Ruth hadn't been a follower of the one true God, it seems clear at this point in time that she is. She is saying before Yahweh, before the God who is, I will walk with you until death and your people will be my people, your God, my God. And at this point, Naomi recognizes I'm not going to be able to, to persuade her. And she just shut her mouth and they continued on to Bethlehem. Now, we have seen the, the journey to Bethlehem. Let's pick up in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty-handed. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of barley harvest. So they're back in Bethlehem. They're back in Bethlehem because now there's food in Bethlehem. There's food. There's, there's something to eat. There's a way to, to make it. When they get back, the town is stirred. There's a certain excitement. Hey, hey, I think Naomi's, I think I saw Naomi. Can you believe that? Oh, I haven't seen her in years and years. So the town, you, you, you can imagine this. Everyone's talking. Is this her? Is this, is this Naomi? And in verse 20, Naomi speaks up and she says, Do not call me Naomi. It's not my name. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me lovely. Perhaps being back in Bethlehem brought a flood of memories into her heart. Could she see the street where she had held the hand of her husband Elimelech and walked along tender moments together? Could she see places where her boys had played as they grew up before the famine, before the hard years? At any rate, a flood of emotion has filled her soul and she can't bear to be called pleasant. She says to the ladies in Bethlehem, call me bitter. 
because the hand of God has dealt bitterly with me. He has testified against me. She sees herself almost as a defendant in a case, and God has declared her guilty, and he's brought judgment upon her. She doesn't understand why. And we're not told. Was there some sin that made God bring discipline and judgment in that sense? We're not told. If there is, there's hope. But we don't have any indication of that. We recognize that oftentimes in the lives of his people, hard times come and we don't get explanations from God. What God requires of us, who are his followers, that when we experience the hard hand of God, he calls us to keep trusting. Think about Job. Job who experienced misery upon misery upon misery. Did he ever have the veil pulled back so that he could understand what was happening? He didn't. God expected Job to keep trusting. So does Naomi have all the answers? She does not. What does God call her to do? To keep trusting him. To keep trusting that he's who he says he is. That he is a good God. A God who loves and cares for his people. And we're going to see as the story continues that he is indeed a good God who keeps his promises, who works his purposes for his glory and for our good. And so in verse 22, the author calls Ruth a Moabite. This may give us some hint of, uh, of racial or ethnic tension here because she's from a different land and she says, and the author tells us that these ladies return at the time of the barley harvest. This would have been late April or early May. But what's important to see is that there is a harvest. There's food. There's food, and that's a huge blessing from God. This is another glimmer of hope, another indication that God is at work in the lives of his people and in Naomi's life. God is at work. So in this chapter, we've seen that God's hand is at work in the lives of his people, even in the worst of times. What does this look like in our lives? How can we take what we've seen here in chapter 1 and how can we make sense of it in our own lives? Well, first, our pain is often a mystery. Our pain is often a mystery. Often there's no way that we can ever understand why God permits, brings into our lives pain and heartache. The scriptures over and over tell us that God is good and that he loves us. And without a doubt, he proved it. He proves it over and over as you read the story of his people, but he proved it in a powerful way by sending his own son you see, Jesus left the glories of heaven, God's only son. And he came and he lived on a, in a broken world, the world that we know. And he suffered and experienced unbelievable heartache. And he was nailed to the cross. Why? Why was he nailed to the cross? Because of God's great love. Because God's a God who keeps his covenant promises. Because God cares for his people. And so when he was nailed to the cross, he made a way for people like you and me who are sinful and who are rebellious against him to be, to be forgiven and to be in a right relationship with him. 
You see, when we begin to wonder, where is God in all of this? Well, he's the same place that he was the day that Jesus died. He's sitting on his throne and he's governing and working out all things for the good of his people and for his glory. The cross is proof positive that God loves. We see behind the scenes indications that God is working out a plan for Naomi. And it's a plan as we'll see in the future chapters, that's going to include Jesus. And it's good news. So our pain's a mystery. God permits pain into our lives, sometimes brings pain into our lives, but we are left with the assurance that he loves his own and that he has our best interest at heart. And in this chapter, we've seen glimpses, yes, glimpses of his kindness Several years ago, I, I watched the TV show Lost. Maybe some of you watched that. It was almost a pointless endeavor because by the end, I was just so frustrated that the way that it ended seemed nonsensical to me. It seemed purposeless to me. It seemed, I was like, I invested all of these hours of my life, and this is how it ends? Seriously. Well, you know, sometimes life feels like that to us. It just feels like nothing's working. Everything's out of sorts. At times, it feels nonsensical to us. But in reality, if we belong to God, it's not like that at all. We may not see. We may not understand. But if we belong to him, God's bringing and working things together for our good. It's a promise, Romans 8, 28 and 29. All throughout Scripture, we see it in the lives of his people. So, our pain is a mystery. Second, in our pain, we must not turn away from God. We must not turn away from God. Naomi was struggling with God. We see that, but she didn't reject him. You can't either. If you think life is hard with God, oh, it's worse without him. If you think that God's sovereignty and his providential rule is troubling, it's even more troubling to imagine a God who's not sovereign. So don't run away from him. Don't pull away from him in the midst of your pain. Keep holding on. Naomi kept holding on. You keep holding on. The other day I got onto my boy for, for doing something that, that he shouldn't have been doing that could hurt him. Got onto him and and he told me, Daddy, I want another dad. <laughs> and I said, well, son, there are moments. Um, no. I said to him, my boy, I love you, but how about, and I started giving him some options, and he turned them all down, um, turned them all down. And it turned out he, he wanted to go ahead and stick it out, he said. Um, but you know, Aren't there moments in life, in our lives, where in our hearts we might not articulate the words, but in our hearts before God we say that, God, I want a different father. I don't like what you're allowing into my life. But I'm saying to you, you have a father who loves you. Do we understand? No. But he's a father who loves you. And I, I love my boy like crazy. I, I wouldn't trade him for the world. And when I, when, I, when I disciplined him, it was for his good. 
And we have a God who's infinitely greater and better than we are. So you keep holding on. You keep trusting. Keep believing. He'll come through. He'll come through. You don't want a different daddy. Keep holding on to your father. Third, in the hardships of life, take hope. Take hope. Take hope. You see, in Naomi's life, there was famine, but then there was food again. There there was food again. In Naomi's life, she was alone, but then there was Ruth. See, take hope. God's not going to abandon you. If if you belong to him, he's not going to let you go. So in the face of of the loss of a loved one, in the face of health issues, in the face of lifelong disabilities and broken dreams, God will not abandon you. He will not leave you alone. He will walk with you just like he was with Naomi, providing a Ruth providing food, making a way, never says that it'll be easy, but he always says that he'll be faithful. You imagine a, a, a mama bear. You get between a mama bear and her cubs, and you're going to be in all kinds of trouble. Listen, God cares for his kids, those who belong to him. He cares for you. Things aren't out of control. Yes, this may have happened and that may have happened, but if you'll draw close to him, God will work things out. He's for you. He's not against you. Fourth, we must not overlook God's kindness in our lives as he provides the simple things, the simple things like food and faithful friends and and good family. He gave those things to Naomi. What a blessing. We can't overlook those in the midst of our pain. Fifth, we need to be faithful and loyal to others, sacrificing ourselves and trusting God in the sacrifice. We need to be faithful and loyal to others. One of the primary ways that God cares for us in our pain is with other believers. Do do, do you see that? This is one of the reasons every person needs to be a part of a church family. This is one of the primary ways that, that God ministers to us in the midst of our pain. Other believers are there for us and care for us and and love us. And that's one of the ways, that's one of God's greatest graces in our lives. Like Ruth stayed beside Naomi. We we need that. We need that. And it reminds us that we need to be that for other people. Are are you faithful and loyal to the people that that God has placed in your life? Are you there for them? We, We need to be willing to sacrifice our own hopes and wishes for the good of others. And I want to emphasize the fact that family loyalty is especially important. Ruth technically was free. The son had died. She could have left. But Ruth was faithful to her mother-in-law. What kind of loyalty is that? It's a beautiful loyalty that God calls us to. Our commitment to our family is critical. As a believer, if we claim to be a believer and we aren't committed and faithful... To, to our own family and, and then to our faith family, other people that God puts our lives. There's a huge problem if we cl- claim to be a person who loves and follows God. In fact, Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So you see, 
And we have a responsibility to be loyal and faithful to the people that God has placed in our lives. Even in-laws. How about that? This is the difference between believers and unbelievers. I know a young man named Miles. He's nearly 30 years old now. He was born, uh, grew up, little baby, all the normal milestones hitting them just right, doing great. But in the third grade for Miles, something wasn't right, and he began to go through a battery of tests. And the tests revealed that he had muscular dystrophy. And, of course, he began to decline. And by the time that, that I knew Miles, uh, he was a young college student. And he was in a motorized wheelchair. That's, that's the way he went anywhere that he went. Um, a lot of things that, that he couldn't do. Um, during the time that, 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 I, that I knew him, um, he, his dad was diagnosed with cancer and had to have very serious surgery and treatments or a lot of other family issues going on. But every time I saw Miles, every time, a smile on his face. Miles trusted God. Miles couldn't answer all the questions he had. Didn't know all the whys, the how-tos. But he kept holding on to God. Brothers and sisters, we got to do the same. There's hope there. There's hope there. What would life look like if you kept holding on to God? Even when the days became dark. If we lived like that. If in the midst of difficulty and hardship and pain, we just kept looking to God and saying, you know what, God, I don't get it, but I'm going to keep holding on. I'm going to keep trusting. What would our lives be like? Would, would some of us be free from a depression and a despondency that we've suffered with for, for ages? Would some of us find freedom from anxiety that, that cripples us? Brothers and sisters, friends, God wants us to trust Him, to keep holding on because He's at work in the lives of his children, even when his hand seems hard. So keep looking to him. Keep looking to him. Don't run from him. Today, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus personally, one-on-one, I want to plead with you to, to come. I would love to visit with you. Uh, Ralph will be around as well. We would love to talk with you about how to know Jesus. How do you make it through a life as difficult and challenging as this one can be? It's only through Christ that we have hope. So if you don't know him, I, I plead with you to turn in faith and believe in him. Let's stand uh, together. We're going to sing. And as we sing this morning, um, I, I want to encourage you to, to ride in, in your seat where you're at. If you're struggling in an area, and most of us are, would you, would you give that to God? Would you say to God, I, I want to keep trusting. I want to keep holding on. And if you don't know him, would you come to know him? This is a time for you to respond to, to the Lord, whatever he's calling you to do. Let's pray together.